Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. The way I got to that incredible breakthrough performance that surprised even my wildest dreams. I would, I was dreaming of a top 10 finish in this race. And here I was way in front of everybody, first across the line. And the, the media swarmed me at the finish line and they had two questions for me. The first one was, hey, did you do the whole course? And number two was, <laughs> what's your name? So it was, it was pretty funny, but I got to that point by allowing the process of improvement to happen naturally. I did not force anything. I didn't have pressure and sponsors and and media attention looking at me and seeing my every move and, and tracking my progress. It was all up to me to do this in an intuitive and graceful manner. And it's the most important lesson that I have to share from uh, those years of competing at the highest level was like, you have to let things unfold naturally and intuitively instead of always forcing the results to happen that you think you should have. And this is the pace that you should run on Tuesday because some coach told you to, to, to maintain this pace or do this many reps. So I think we can all back up a little bit from the, uh, the OCD approach to fitness and realize that if we establish good sleeping habits and good stress management habits and enjoy what we're doing, don't attach your self-esteem to the outcome of what you're doing. That's when you can improve and truly, uh, you know, express your full potential and even go beyond what you, you thought was your potential. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed best-selling author, former professional triathlete, and podcast host of the B-Rad podcast, Brad Kearns. We discussed Brad's rise through the ranks of being a professional triathlete in the 80s, along with the importance of zone one training, the problems with restrictive diets, the value of having muscle mass as we age, hormetic stressors in recovery, and much, much more. Really enjoyed my interview with Brad. This was our fifth one, and I think our best. So thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have on for the 40th time, Brad Kearns. No. <laughs> yeah, here we go, man. Checking in again. Yep, checking in. You know, I think it's good to come in and check in with Brad every so often. I envy him um, when I'm in my, what are you, in your 50s? 58, you know, man. 58. I'd like to... Feeling know, be, great. Yeah, be in your shape. How how are you feeling? How's everything with you? Well, the big uh, challenge here in the older age groups is to stay out there and not get injured. So I have all these elaborate performance goals and I want to do this time and clear this bar in the high jump and, you know, excel in speed golf. But now like all those have floated down way below my number one and most daunting and compelling athletic performance goal, which is don't get injured. And then <laughs> number two and number three are the same. And then we start to drip in and, and, you know, focus on performance, but um, I'm constantly learning. And one of the, one of the big takeaways is that we need to uh, respect this idea of performing under the radar more. And instead what we have in fitness industry culture is like this glorification of crushing workouts and slamming a killer session. And I was so torched after and all the languaging that we use and all the, the bro speak and just the celebration of, of, you know, pushing yourself and that's how you get fit. 
and it's complete bullshit for anyone at any age group. Um, the younger folks can get away with it more than I can, but my days of crushing workouts are, are no longer. Now I will crush a competition, hopefully, because I'll be carefully preparing my body, taking care of it, leaving a little bit in the tank at every workout. And then when it's time to go all out and have a true peak performance effort, like, hey, someone's training for the New York City Marathon and they can't wait and their friends are going and we're going to fly there. It's going to be awesome. Well, don't leave that you know, that, that, that final, uh, part of the well that you go to, to run 26 miles, don't leave that on your last three 20 mile runs. It's, it's ludicrous, but we've been socialized to, um, to perform this way. And I, I have a lot of good things to say about CrossFit. And then some of the stuff is like, why are you guys going in there and screaming and cheering for each other to do three more reps on a typical workout day? save that for the freaking CrossFit games when you're on TV. And if you're performing, you know, in a recreational manner, and this is just part of a hectic, high stress balance, attempt to be balanced lifestyle, um, go down two to three notches with every single workout that you do. And over time, you're going to progress gracefully and gradually to higher and higher fitness levels. Here's the funny part. Elite athletes know this. So by and large, dudes like, Iluid Kipchoge, or uh, Asefa, the female that just ran 211 marathon, one of the most sensational endurance performances of all time, they train well within themselves at every single workout. They're not puking on the side of the track like Rocky Balboa. That was a movie. Um, but the average recreational fitness enthusiast training for a marathon or going to CrossFit, look at their heart rate, look at their blood levels afterward, whatever you want to measure, they're training, quote unquote, if you're watching on video, I'm making quotes, they're training harder than some of the greatest athletes in the world by by comparison to relative effort. And we also must uh, remark that the elite athletes are genetically gifted. So they can go slam very impressive workouts at 87% of maximum capacity, like Jakobinka Brixton, and wake up the next morning and feel okay. But if you go out and do an 87% uh, you know, lactate threshold session, you might need three days recovery. So maybe you should go 80% or 78%. And if you do the, the math, which I have done with uh, taking great advice from people that are advising me with sprinting, and I do 80% effort on 200 meter repeats, it's so slow. It's ridiculous. It's like, why do I even go to the track? I can do this in the parking lot. But that's how the elite athletes train. They train within their capacity and they keep building and building, building. And now if we talk three months later, my 80% is going to be a couple seconds faster. Guess what's going to happen to my race time? Again, a couple seconds faster. And that's that's the way to improve rather than slam yourself into the wall over and over and over in hopes that you're going to get stronger and tougher. And Thanks thank for- you for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean <laughs> okay, podcast. Okay, we've That's run all out of we time. Need to say to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> we've run out of time. No, um, no. So it's interesting you bring up injuries. I mean, I recently tried to push myself a little bit as far as doing uh, a sumo deadlift, which is just a wider version of a deadlift, which I'm not used to, and did a little heavier than normal. Nothing crazy. I think I got like five, six reps, but I think that at least my experience as I've gotten like 40 plus, you can still get results and not have to necessarily push too much with the weight um, and keep the, keep the volume up. I think, you know, when you're in your twenties, it's like, okay, you can, you can do those lower rep points. Not to say that there's plenty of people who are in their forties that are doing heavy weights, but 
I just think the risk maybe is not really worth, you know, the return for doing um, heavier weights isn't really worth it um, as much because if you do get injured, which I did tweak my hip, you know, now I'm out for a week. Right. So that just sets me back. So like you said, a week, it, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> it's, I, I was just talking to my physical therapist before we got on. Cause I strained my hip flexor, a mild strain of the hip flexor. And I'm like, dude, true. this is two weeks ago. How long this thing's going to last? And he says, typically four to 10 weeks. I'm like four to 10 weeks for a mild muscle strain. It takes four to 10 weeks to recover. So when we dip into the well and make a mistake, it, the penalty is massively huge. And we, it just can't, you know, we, we can't accept this anymore, but it's part of fitness culture, like I said. So we really need to take a step back and go, what am I doing to my body when I show up in the gym or head out onto the roads and trails and, and really think about the intent of the training session, where it lands in the big picture schedule, and also to rein in that misplaced competitive intensity where you feel like you have to race yourself or your training partner at every workout. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like trying to find the fine line between doing too heavy and, and like low reps versus a lot of reps and like just not getting anywhere with that. So I think you, you got to sort of try, I mean, you'll hear like hypertrophy training, you know, 10 to 12 reps, but it's been shown that you can build muscle doing 20 reps. I think the key is like, you have to have some type of effort, right? There has to be some type of fatigue involved. Um, and I think you can get that fatigue whether it's 20 reps, 12 or three. And I think just as I've gotten older, like I don't, I've gotten away from the three to four to five rep range mm. and I went back to it and look what happened. So anyways, we could talk all of, all about that, but, um, so, all right. Yeah, and, that's a good so, point. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. go ahead. I, I, it's safer I'm, to do more reps with less weight is what you're saying. Safer and possibly getting to the same destination. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And even using machines. I think before I used to not use machines as much and there's a little more stability involved, especially if you don't have a spotter. So that, yeah, I think mm -hmm. it's a lot of sort of a lot of different angles you can take on that. But like you said, like it's not like who wants to get injured? Obviously, we're not training to get injured, but um, I think you can be smart about it and not get away with things that you could have gotten away with maybe when you were in your 20s. So Yep. Even then, I mean, I was a professional racer in my 20s. I was on the triathlon circuit for nine years, and I made a lot of mistakes that cost me dearly on the race course and very high uh, profile and high stakes and high uh, prize purse, and I wasn't quite at my best. And so this thing that went around, I think Paul Huddle made it up, an old-time triathlete, it's better to be 10% undertrained than 2% overtrained. And it's totally true because when it's time to ask a lot of your body, if you've been taking care of it and keeping something in reserve, you're going to be able to go to the powerlifting meet and go for a one rep max more than you've ever done before. But if you keep training at 93% of your one rep max, um, you're going to cook out a, a joint or a connective tissue or the central nervous system. And that's it's just not the way to improve. And again, I'm going to emphasize the example set by the elite athletes where they're probably shaking their heads, looking at these people that are, you know, sharing the same running track with them or the same gym going, wow, that guy's pushing it so hard. What's his problem? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, on another note, I wanted to talk about, uh, some of the things, I mean, you've been in the, you, how long have you been in the health world for? 
A long time, man. I, I you know, I, I guess <laughs> back in the I, day, I, you started yeah. with Mark Sisson, or did you did you start before that? I mean, you've been in the tri, you know, you were a triath- professional triathlete. Um, and yeah, then, interestingly, you know. I mean, I, I I was I was a failed runner in college. I kept getting sick and injured, so I turned over to this new sport called triathlon. This is in the eighties, and I loved it so much as a you know recreational pursuit. Uh, but then when I got into the job market. I, I got slapped in the face by the realities of, of life. And like, it was so miserable. I was working for the world's largest accounting firm. It was a prestigious position to land out of college. And I had my suit and tie. And um, here I was on the career track. And I only lasted 11 weeks because it was so depressing. And I just hated it. And at that point, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, you know, take control of my life. And I'm going to quit this, quit this job. And I'm going to pursue a career as a professional triathlete. Wow. And it was a complete folly back then because there was no professionalism. There was a few guys making money from endorsements and they were the the legends of the sport back then, the winner of the Ironman like Dave Scott. Uh, but I just kept my dream alive and I kept training and I was doing it from a place of pure motivation. And so I love my life experience so much. I didn't have to motivate myself to drag my ass over to the pool or to get out on the trail every single morning. And so the entire experience was really uh, fulfilling and valuable to me. And I took great care of my body because I was just enamored with the challenge of getting better and getting faster. And I was way, way behind the best guys. But I kept dreaming if I stick to it and I keep this nice, pure and, and approach full of love and appreciation, things would work out for me. And at the end of my very first year on the pro circuit, I was just this unknown rookie. Um, I had this breakthrough race and I upset the undefeated number one ranked athlete in the world. And so all of a sudden I went from uh, former accountant having a, a, a folly of a, a year sabbatical to try to screw around and swim, bike and run. And now all of a sudden um, it was clear that I had a career track in front of me as an athlete. Uh, but I'm telling you this little tale here because the way I got to that incredible breakthrough performance that surprised even my wildest dreams, I would I was dreaming of a top 10 finish in this race. And here I was way in front of everybody, first across the line. And the, the media swarmed me at the finish line and they had two questions for me. The first one was, hey, did you do the whole course? And number two was, <laughs> what's your name? So it was it was pretty funny, but I got to that point by allowing the process of improvement to happen naturally. I did not force anything. I didn't have pressure and sponsors and and media attention looking at me and seeing my every move and, and tracking my progress. It was all up to me to do this in an intuitive and graceful manner. And it's the most important lesson that I have to share from uh, those years of competing at the highest level was like, you have to let things unfold naturally and intuitively instead of always forcing the results to happen that you think you should have. And this is the pace that you should run on Tuesday because some coach told you to, to, to maintain this pace or do this many reps. So I think we can all back up a little bit from the, uh, the OCD approach to fitness and realize that if we establish good sleeping habits and good stress management habits and enjoy what we're doing, don't attach your self-esteem to the outcome of what you're doing. That's when you can improve and truly, uh, you know, express your full potential and even go beyond what you, you thought was your potential. So you had a breakthrough in your first year of racing. Is that correct? 
you know, it was about the time when the season was ending and I was going to have to go get a job uh, delivering pizzas or even worse, crawl with my tail between my legs back to the accounting firm. So there was, I should say, there was some pressure there, but I wasn't looking at it like that. It wasn't like do or die. Um, but I, I should, um, before we move on, like put a little a footnote to the story uh, because what soon happened as I became a prominent, uh, you know, prospect or a rising uh, person to watch on the pro circuit was then I started to put pressure on myself. Right. I started okay. to pay attention more to writing down every little nuance of my workouts because now Brad Kearns wasn't an anonymous guy. He was really important and one of the favorites. And look at this article in the magazine and look at these people calling me and paying attention to me. And guess what happened when I start to get when I start to get into a more regimented, serious, focused approach. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right. I overtrained and struggled and went out and got my ass kicked. And the people are like, well, I guess he was a flash in the pan or something. And I'm like, wait, 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 no, no. I've just been screwing things up because I'm taking myself too seriously. So as you know, the, the former title of my podcast was the Get Over Yourself podcast. And that was you know, one of the great lessons I had to learn that look, whatever happens out there, you're, you gotta do your best. You can't be attached to the results so much that you get in your own way, which is what type A, highly motivated, goal-oriented, driven people do. They just, uh, you know, they mess things up with their misplaced competitive intensity. Well, and you see this all the time in sport, right? With results come expectations. And with those expectations, um, that's when, you know, that's when things can can go wrong, right? You're, you're going, it's, you see this with golf all the time, right? These guys mm-hmm. win a major and then you don't hear about them for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look at like Rory McIlroy came out of the, came out of the, in the pro circuit as like the next best thing. I mean, he's unbelievable, obviously, but he won a bunch of majors. I think he won four majors within his first few years. And everyone's like, Oh my God, he's going to break Nicholas's record. Hasn't won a major in gosh, eight years. Yeah. yeah, yeah years. I was going to say nine years and, yeah. and still looking to win a major. He's won plenty of tournaments and he's been highly successful. But if you look, if you, someone told you that he, it was going to take him 10 years and he still wasn't going to win something as far as a major, you'd think you were, he was crazy, but, so, uh, and I'm I'm just curious. So you won that race in your first year. How many more years did you race? And then did, did you did you feel like you met up to those expectations um, as you went? Yeah, my career lasted nine years, and actually, it took me four or five more years to truly hit a peak. Okay. Um, I was two time national champion. I was ranked number three in the world. Um, and then after that, I was so tired from traveling around the world and kicking butt and having, I won seven races in a row at one point, you know, I was on top and everything was locked in and it seemed easy and effortless when I was at my very best. And then the body gets tired. And in the case of, you know, elite level professional athletics, sometimes you just don't get it back. And that's why you see, you know, Clay Thompson, one of the greatest shooters and all around all-star basketball players of all time. And now, you know, my, my friends are saying he's, he's a step down from what he was. And so is James Harden. And so is this superstar. And so is that superstar. And it's tough to stay up there. So I started feeling my body not recovering and not performing quite at that level. And I think it's really valuable in the field of athletics because it's so graphic and black and white. So I would have like this uh, training. uh, One of my favorite training runs was uh, get to the bottom of the river Canyon and climb a pretty steep windy hill to the green gate at the top. And my best time was 15 flat. 
And if I take you out there now and and show you what a 15 flat is, this is a guy who can win races on the world circuit, right? And then a year later, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm going to train. I'm going to go test myself. And I show up at the gate and it says 1611. I'm like, what the F is this, man? It was the same, the same effort expenditure, but that's when you get slapped in the face. Like, well, dude, uh, you know, you, you got on too many airplanes, you did too many races, you shot your wad, and now you're in a, a fatigue or a recovery cycle. And there's not too many easy ways to get out of that. And so my career ended really gracefully because, um, you know, I was getting fourth, seventh, eighth, 17th, third, first in a little crappy race that no one cared about. And I, you know, I couldn't fool myself any longer to, to realize that like, I guess, you know, when an athletes at their peak, they never know it's their peak. They just think, Hey, we're going to go for a dynasty. Now we won the NBA title. We're going to come back and win three more in a row. Uh, nah, I don't think so. Um, and in my case, like my peak came and went, and then I have to look back and go, uh, I guess, I guess that was my peak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Did you find that um, like, was there like the money, was there more money in the sport as you went along? And like, did you find like the pride, like the, the prize pools went up and, and endorsements and things like that? Or yeah, the, the, the interesting thing about a sport like triathlon is it's, you know, it's very minor. So, um, the hundredth ranked money winner on the PGA tour is getting, uh, several million dollars a year in earnings. And the, 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 the 800th ranked golfer in the world is probably making a decent living so he can go and tee it up and and play golf. Um, but in triathlon, if, if one were to win a race, the income would be somewhere around 10 X if you got fourth or fifth or sixth. And so So when I was mentioning my placements there in the, in the last couple of years of my career, it's not as much fun when you're getting fourth, seventh, 11th, 17th, and ninth versus first, first, third, first, first, third, first, second, um, and so, you know, it was, the, it was the, a great run in the year you won those, when you went on that run, like, if you don't mind, like, what did you make for first place? I would just be curious. Like, was it, like, um, do you, you know, remember like the, a good, a good prize purse would be like, you know, 5,000 or so for the winner, maybe more. Um, and then you get a lot of bonuses behind the scenes and that was all due to like negotiation. Like if somebody didn't want to pay me money, I'd say, okay, well, why don't you just bonus me for first, second, and third position? And so some of these sponsors, they could have got me for cheaper, right? That I would wear your sunglasses for, you know, five grand a year. But if you couldn't afford that or didn't believe in me, then I'm going to stick it to you for, um, you know, $1,500 every time I win a race. And oh, by the way, I won, um, you know, nine times this year that <laughs> you start to get so it's all top heavy is what I'm trying to say. And that's the same for a golfer and the same for anybody where you, you win that major title and then you start signing deals and everything goes crazy, but we forgot who got second and third and fourth. And it's, it's totally fair. Like I, I resented it at first when I was a young athlete trying to make it and, you know, hoping to not deliver pizzas in the winter. And, you know, you'd learn what the guy that just beat you by a minute and 14 seconds, but he's making three times as much money as I am. Well, that's not fair. They don't, they don't have that in the accounting firm when, you know, you're, you're one of the best CPAs, but not quite the superstar mm-hmm. you're making the same salary or whatever, but in, 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 uh, in racing, you either complain about it and stay mired there or you do something about it. And I've had some great mentors come along, especially when I was an athlete 
Um, and I think this was maybe the, this is how we got started on this is you asked me a question about Sisson. He was my coach when I was a young professional triathlete. Mm. And so he was a big help in helping me open my mind to um, a more evolved approach to training than the typical high mileage approach, which was, you know, the centerpiece of all these endurance sports. It's like, how many hours a week can you train? And the more hours you can train, the faster you're going to get. And that's true up to a point where you can get in the top 5% of the field by working really hard and, and putting in the hours. And then it's like, wait a second, how am I going to go from 14th place to first, second, or third? And that's when you have to get smart and pick your pick your spots and push the body hard on an occasion to achieve a fitness breakthrough and then allow for a lot of recovery. And that was Sisson's you know, claim to famous. He was the first guy to say, hey, look, it's kind of stupid to pound your head against the pavement every day. Why don't you just do things like breakthrough workouts was his term where, you know, I'd go and ride my bike uh, instead of five hours for the longest ride. I up my longest ride to seven and a half hours in one day. I'm spending all day on my bike, but guess what I'm doing the next couple of days? I'm walking over to the video store. I'm renting a few movies. I'm swimming 15 minutes to stretch. And, uh, and then I take a two hour nap and watch uh, three movies to end my night. And that's how you break through from 14th to possibly winning the race is you push the body and you get a breakthrough, but you let it, you know, soak in and settle and absorb. Yeah. Focus on recovery. Um, well, that's interesting. I didn't know all that about your career. I mean, nine years is a long time, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, there's people I'm sure who, you know, you, you almost quit after a year, like you said, but you had a breakthrough. I mean, you look at like golf, some of these guys are going for decades and they're still trying to break through and it just sort of you know i mean <laughs> yeah, there's a lot I of mean, luck it's... there's a lot of luck that has yeah. to happen right and when to, to win at a high level mm -hmm. and you know timing and things like that because there's a lot of i just keep comparing it to golf because that's all i know but there's a lot of unbelievable great golfers that we've never even heard of they just it, they haven't broken through at the right time so I'm yeah sure... i mean i i think in in athletics we're now seeing you know breakthroughs in research and psychology and there's there's so much more to it where you know your your mannerisms and your self talk and your verbal talk to others you can pick apart these things that leave us uh, mired in slumps or mired at a certain level self sabotage is very common they talk about it with relation to um, relationships uh, career advancement and all these things where we don't feel deserving of being a, a, a champion. And so we push our body too hard in training to be exhausted so that we never truly test ourselves and, and, and try to become a champion in the race. So when I talk about um, spending the afternoon uh, watching videos and relaxing, uh, it took a lot of confidence and it took a lot of courage. And it helps to go uh, climb, you know, for, for seven hours the previous day and realize that you had a sense of accomplishment there, but to back off from this obsession with accomplishing something every day and getting a sweat and getting a workout every day um, for the, for the average, you know, recreational fitness enthusiast, it's really important to give your body a break at times and go into the gym and do a workout at 50% capacity. I mean, most people would laugh. Imagine going through your next workout at 50% because you have a slight scratchy throat and the weather's changing and you're not quite right. Well, go do a 50%. That means four reps of half the weight than you do at your best session. It's almost nothing, but it delivers a tremendous 
cardiovascular and, and muscle strengthening effect. And as soon as you get up out of your chair and, and go for a walk, you're in training, you're doing a steady state cardio and you're getting a fantastic fitness experience. It's just not stressful and strenuous. So we don't respect it as much. And and just one more point, we'll move on is I'll just say that like, <laughs> I think for individuals, especially 40, 50 plus, and if you're doing resistance training, if you're very intentional when you're lifting and you're really focusing not only on pushing that weight up, right, the concentric, but the eccentric motion where it's coming back down, where it's been proven that that's a, a great way to help build muscle. And mm. what I've noticed is when I'm really intentional and I slow the tempo, like I don't need a lot of weight. And, and so I would just, that would be my advice for a lot of people, especially as they're getting up there is you don't need to try to push so much weight and not, you see this all the time in the gym where they're not even controlling it on the way down, but that's, you're almost wasting half the lift. And so I just think that if you are doing resistance training, especially as you get older, if you really focus in on, on, you know, the negative point part of it, uh, you, you'll get, you can get a ton of benefit from that and not have to worry about trying to lug up heavy weights. If you focus on that part of the lift. So love it, man. And to make an analogy to the endurance athletes listening, um, when you just go out there for some breezy exercise at very low heart rate, you are getting a fantastic aerobic training effect. You're, you're activating the same aerobic energy producing enzymes and muscle fibers that you are when you're doing an all out time trial or a race. And so walking and easy pedaling and going into the gym and, and, and looking at the TV and just pedaling for 45 minutes is, you know, it, it gives tremendous value to the overall development of your aerobic system and, and building your endurance. And when I was training at the highest level during my triathlon career, I would do a huge chunk of my mileage running and biking at heart rates that were 20, 30, 40, 50 beats below my aerobic maximum, my fat max heart rate. Um, Today, if I'm 20 or 30 beats below my fat max heart rate, I'm walking slowly or I'm barely pedaling the bike. It happened that I was fit enough where I could run eight minute miles um, and still have a heart rate of 115 or something with my aerobic maximum being 155 and my absolute maximum being 195. So I'm running, uh, what is that? 80 beats below max heart rate as a, a good chunk of my training. Let's say half of my running mileage was just out there jogging and conditioning the body and preparing the body for those hard workouts. Like when I ran from the bottom of the Canyon up to the, the green gate in 15 minutes, but you have to maintain that aerobic base for virtually every sport It needs this aerobic conditioning effect. And I think, you know, it's now getting prominent. You hear people talk about zone two cardio. Uh, Dr. Atia has it in his uh, best-selling book. And, and every, everyone's talking about zone two this and zone two that. And I'm sitting here raising my hand in the uh, in the crowd saying, what about zone one? I mean, we got to give zone one some more love. And that's <laughs> a walk around the block with the dog or a hike on the weekend where you're hiking with um, the new date you just met online and you're going way slower than you usually do. And you're totally good with it because you're having a good time talking and your heart rate's down in a very comfortable fat burning zone. That's not going to tax you. It's not going to spike stress hormones in the bloodstream and it's not going to, you know, compromise your development when you put in a, a more difficult workout the next day. Love it. And getting back to what I was originally going to ask is, uh, yeah, you, you've been in the health business for a long time. Business. As a runner, 
And now you're a podcast host, author, you know, you have a great protein out there. You got a nut butter, but either way, um, I wanted to ask you the main question was, and you can tell me, let's say three, we could start with three things, uh, that you have changed your mind on, um, on, let's just say in health and wellness in general, from back when you were, you know, started out till now, what have you changed your mind on? Um, this is great. I, th- I think I'm going to have six by the time we're done. <laughs> Some of them we've already touched on. Um, one of them is this concept of crushing workouts. And, right. you know, I thought that in order to beat the guy who was still up in front of me on the road, um, by one minute in a two hour race, I thought it was just, okay, push myself a little harder at the next few workouts and, and dig deeper when I'm, I'm running up the steep hill. Um, but in reality, it's, you know, being patient, developing really uh, carefully and intelligently, and then laying it out there. And you're going to have your day if you train uh, carefully and appropriately. And then as a, as a side note, um, there's a lot of genetics involved in mm. professional sports and at any level. So if we um, look at the New York City Marathon, they had 51,700 finishers this year. Um, one of the biggest races of all time. And we're standing at the finish line, uh, starting with the first guy coming in at 204. And we stay there for the next several hours until we see the people coming in at six and seven hours. Um, where do you fall in the pack? A lot of that is determinant by your genetics. There's also a lot by your training, but like the guys who are running 230 versus the guys who are running three, the guys running 330, and the guys running four, um, everyone's enjoying themselves, hopefully, but you're going to try to do the best you can and be content and satisfied with wherever you finish. And I mentioned my career highlights. I was ranked number three in the world. And at that time, you know, I would sometimes dream, maybe I could make it to number one and beat the guys who are, you know, still superior to me. And then I'd go and train with them a little bit. I realized that wasn't really my goal. So looking in the mirror and saying, no, what Brad Kearns wants to do is he wants to do it his way. I want to enjoy myself. I want to lead a somewhat balanced lifestyle. It's not win or die for me. And there's guys that I'm competing with that are one step up from that rung saying, yeah, it's pretty much win or die for me. And I don't give a F about anything else. And, um, I, I give these guys a lot of credit. We, we've celebrated the competitive intensity of Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan and all this, but um, you don't really want to switch places with guys like that because they are consumed and tormented by their absolute, absolute desperate necessity to win. And I thought there was a better way and a more nuanced way and a way that I could inspire and motivate others along the way, rather than being this focused, arrogant, egotistical asshole, number one athlete. And, uh, you know, that was what my commitment was. And I, I don't think it slowed me down, but there's also that genetic component where it's like, you know, you're probably doing the best you can. And why don't you have a smile and be happy and be satisfied with your own personal best? Okay. So number so that was number uh, one, yeah. yeah. That was num- that was uh, you number know one crushing is... workouts and and punishing yourself in the interest so, of getting better. Yeah. Okay. And then what what not, what else have you changed your mind on? Well, I guess we've talked about this, so we can go quickly through these because um, we've talked about the um, reevaluation of what I'll say, quote unquote, restrictive diets. So restricting carbohydrates, restricting time periods. 
um, restricting other macronutrients, restricting calories um, for a healthy, fit, energetic person, um, I don't see the rationale. I think it piles on too much stress onto an already chronically stressful life. So when you're doing your workouts and then you're going home and you're preparing a keto meal in the name of stimulating autophagy or you're waiting until 12 noon to eat your first meal because you want to have a longer, a shorter time window because you get all these anti-inflammatory immune boosting and autophagy benefits. The science and the research is all there. And I don't retract anything that Mark Sisson and I have written in our books, like the Keto Reset Diet, where we present how to do keto the right way. Um, but in in my personal example, um, I am obsessed with performance and recovery as an athlete. And the science is clear on this matter that the single best intervention ever discovered for longevity is fitness. And quote from Peter Atia, nothing else even comes close. Uh, Peter also adds that he used to think it was diet. And then he changed his mind in light of the emerging research that if you stay fit and if you maintain functional muscle mass and cardiovascular conditioning throughout life, you are going to sail past the disease risk factors that are getting us in droves as, as the norm today. And you're going to have the best chance at leading a long, healthy, happy, active life. So today, my new mantra for the rest of my life is perform, recover, perform, recover. And that is my total focus. And I want all my almost all of my stress capacity to go to uh, difficult, challenging workouts and recovery from those workouts. So getting back to the topic, do I need to throw in fasting or carb restriction in the name of becoming a healthier person? I don't think so. I think it's better to allocate those energetic resources and those stress hormones to the workouts and then instead strive for maximum cellular energy status at all times. So I'm going to finish my sprint workout this morning, come right home and prepare a recovery smoothie with the awesome B-Rad whey protein super fuel. Thanks for the commercial. And now back to the show. And I'm also not going to restrict my uh, eating times, except for, you know, not try not to eat much after dark. And um, I'm, I'm still in a 12 hour eating window, right? Or whatever that is. Um, so that's a, a recalibration from trying to figure out this winning strategy of, yeah, well, I fast a few days and then, um, you know, another day I, I do a long workout and then I'm, you know, I do these keto cycles. These are tools that are highly effective for people that need to lose excess body fat and correct their adverse blood values. So if you are at or near your ideal body composition and you have good blood work, you don't have disease risk factors, I don't see the rationale for restricting uh, diet. However, what we all desperately need to do better is restrict our intake of processed foods. And so when you title your show, um, Eat Clean, if, if you're not doing that, people, you might as well not listen to any other show until you clear your cupboards from the crap, because then you don't even have a fighting chance of metabolic health until you clean up your diet. So I'm in favor of you know, uh, eating to your heart's content, 
of natural, nutritious, wholesome foods that are easy to digest. So that's a little plug for the carnivore and the great guests you've had talking about how some of these plant foods that are lauded as plant, as nutritional superstars might be difficult to digest for certain people. And so I want easy to digest nutrient dense foods to my heart's content. And guess what's going to happen if you eat, uh, if you avoid processed foods, eat nutritious foods, your appetite and satiety mechanisms are going to guide you perfectly to an optimal amount of caloric intake. And then we're going to honor the recommendation from Dr. Tommy Wood, one of the smartest guys in the space and super fit himself and active and energetic. He says he counsels his active fit clients to eat as much nutritious food as possible until they gain a pound of fat. And then you dial it back a little bit. And that's when you know you're optimal. It's not when you're goofing around with a tighter eating window or tracking your macros and trying to get your carbs from 100 to 50. It's finding as much nutritious food that, that you need and that you're, you desire to eat. And that will you know carry you to um, good performance and recovery. And oh, by the way, um, there are almost zero examples of restrictive eating strategies amongst elite athletes across all sport. That's from Lindsay Barra. She's the host of a podcast where she interviews athletes about their eating habits. Yeah, and we just don't see that. it. You we don't see it. Your podcast. Right. That's you oh, wait Barrow's a second, daughter. Brad and Brian. What about all the guys on uh, Game Changers? Well, that thing's been torched by experts like Chris Kresser, where some of these guys were saying they felt great on vegan diet, but then they switched to um, a more you know wholesome, nutritious diet. Some of them had career-ending injuries and all this kind of thing. So it suffice to say that when you're looking at your NFL game on the weekend, or you're watching an NBA game, or you're watching the Olympics, these athletes are fueling themselves uh, you know, going for full cellular energy status. I will say that some of them could deserve to, you know, clean up their diet a bit, but they're not fasting until noon. I promise you that. A lot of points there. Um, and I, I mean, I agree with, with that, obviously a lot of it, I will say that, um, you know, I, I got into the game of fasting. Um, I thought it was intriguing, something that like, I just wanted to experiment for myself. And so if you've never really done any type of fasting, I, I do say like it's, it's worth trying a little bit because it does give you the mental uh, wherewithal and to understand sort of like what is true hunger and what isn't, you know, because I think we're in a society where we, most people aren't in that top echelon of athletes and um, uh, yeah, top athletes athletes or or bodybuilders or whatever where they can sort of almost do whatever and they'll, they'll be all right to some degree uh but you talk about over restricting yes i think you can take fasting too far i will say that like you said uh briefly is i like sort of this i i, I don't know if anyone else has coined this term but uh the bumper approach of fasting where you're you're giving yourself buffers on each side of the the start of the day and the end of the day where you're not necessarily getting up right away and eating right, you know, stuffing your face right away. You're giving it a little bit of time. And then to the end of the day, giving yourself some time um, as well. And I think for some people, it gives them boundaries around their day. So I agree. I think like I was somewhat obsessive about like my time periods of fasting and it can be a little bit, um, I don't know, it can, you, you could become over um, I'm not trying to think of the word, but like you could be overzealous on, on trying to, to fit your windows. Oh, I got to finish by this second. You know, I don't think you need to be obsessive about it, but it can give you boundaries. 
Um, and you talk about process versus non non process. I actually did a micro podcast a few weeks ago, and uh, it was a one month study. I won't go into a ton of detail, but it was interesting. It took uh, subjects and they followed an ultra processed diet for two weeks, and then a non processed diet for another two weeks. Um, and the menu sort of rotated on a seven day schedule. Um, and they were all matched across the diets for total calories, energy density, macronutrients, fiber, sugar, sodium. Um, but these diets were widely differing as far as like what was it, what was in them, right? So you got processed foods. There was obviously less fiber involved. Um, ultra processed versus the versus the unprocessed version. And what happened was the people that ate the the unprocessed ver or I'm sorry, the processed version ate 500 calories more a day compared mm. to the unprocessed. So they they ended up gaining weight on the highly processed diet because what they were eating was not satisfying them and they and they and then and they ended up eating more per day which in in the long haul you know calories do play a role they're not everything but uh they ended up putting on weight body fat mass because of that um so yeah just to go off your point so i, yeah. I think i think that like you know just to sum it like fasting is a tool it can be overdone and i was overdoing it probably for a while now i've added in more food into my diet, but I think, um, yeah, I think like yeah, the takeaway, I mean, uh, yeah, go ahead. You're a, you're an orange strap guy, man. So, so get off it for a second, you know, you, you, well, you, people you, don't know what that is, but, <laughs> but, but he's, he's stretching the, 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 the super <laughs> incredibly difficult, uh, stretch band on the X3 bar. So I should, um, follow up my, 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 uh, my blather there saying that, you know, 96% of the people I know would probably benefit from some fasting, a keto exercise to improve metabolic flexibility um, and, and playing around with the various ways that we can restrict our unfettered access to indulgent foods, which is what we have today. So I, anything will work, anything. Wait until 12 to, to, to eat your breakfast because then you're going to eat fewer calories the, over the course of the day. Um, Peter T. have said this too, like um, the time-restricted feeding has no inherent benefit besides a default restriction of calories because you have less time to eat calories. So it's not like the body works better because you give your digestive system a break from 8 a.m. to 12 noon. That's been refuted by science, except when you have a shitty breakfast and you feel better fasting until noon. Well, let's take a look at your breakfast. Jay Feldman said that on my show. He's like, if you claim to feel better skipping breakfast, let's take a look at that nasty ass breakfast that you're having every day. And that's why you're feeling better. But if you can wake up and, you know, my transition to, to answer the question, like things I've changed my mind about, mm. I typically wouldn't eat much food in the morning hours. And then I have a big meal in the midday. Now I get up and I deliberately chow a huge bowl of fresh fruit and a very uh, robust, high protein, uh, super fuel smoothie with a bunch of other stuff thrown in there. So I'm starting my day. Of course, I work out before that, but I'm starting the rest of the day fully fueled rather than mixing in the the uh, concurrent stressors of a workout and fasting after the workout. Yeah, and that's a good point. And I will just say that I think that if you are going to maybe skip a meal or maybe have a lighter meal, I think you're probably better off having that lighter meal later in the day because they they're you know they have shown that you are more insulin sensitive early on and um 
early on in the day. So mm-hmm. also too, uh, Dr. Don Lehman had talked about it on my podcast is prioritizing protein, especially early on in the day, um, can help, um, sort of create a cascade of events, uh, within, you know, just obviously, you know, meeting your protein requirements first and foremost, which most people don't. Um, <laughs> I, I know, I know I wasn't for a while when I was fasting and mm-hmm. I think a lot of people under eat that neut- macronutrient. We know that is, that it's fairly satiating to eat protein. So I think, um, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I think there is no perfect window. Um, and like you said, if, if you're, if you're an athlete, you probably don't need much of a window, but for some people they might need a little bit of a window because it, it, it sort of guides them and it, and it creates boundaries throughout the right. day for eating. Yeah, it's tough. It's a battle. And we, we haven't even, neither of us are experts on um, emotional attachments to eating and eating disorders, but there's a lot of things that we can do to clean up our act in terms of our behavior patterns, our food choices and all that. And there's a zillion trillion great books about it. One of them is the keto reset diet, where it's like, if you can go through this six weeks exercise to teach your body to burn fat really efficiently and also manufacture ketones in place of glucose, you're going to be better off for it and more metabolically flexible. Um, but let's, let's aspire for all of us to get more active get moving more, uh, do more, st- you know, general everyday movement. And maybe that'll even, um, you know, in- increase your appetite for nutritious foods and become a, you know, a-, a clean burning active energetic machine. So it's sort of like this eat more, move more. One of my readers uh, coined that in an email. I'm like, that's brilliant. It's the eat more, move more approach to longevity. Yeah. Anyone want to, f- anyone want to battle that? You get that mofo on your show next week. And if you're telling me that if you, you know, just shut down your, um, don't, don't exercise much and also don't eat much and you'll live to a hundred. I'm going to say, first of all, no, thank you because I enjoy eating and exercising. And then second of all, I'm going to say you're, you're flat out wrong, man. We're energetic beings. We need fuel and energy and we need to put it to good use instead of sit on our butt all day. Yeah. And I'll just add one more thing and we can move on. The one thing that doing fasting can help individuals with is um if they're having some gut issues and the, the foods that we're eating they were that they were eating before they started doing some type of fasting it was causing them issues um and we know that there's plenty of gut stressors that individuals mm. you know just yeah. even just modern wheat and things like that yeah. or you know lectins and things like that that are in foods and sometimes when people do start fasting they start feeling really good because they're eliminating a lot of these gut stressors that they were um, consuming on a daily basis. So yeah, um, good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So let, what's one other one uh, that uh, okay, you changed your mind? <laughs> that's two. Um, yeah. You know, we've been talking about uh, performing and recovering and allocating my stress resources toward um, ambitious workouts. Um, of course, I have to allocate a little slice of that pie to uh, lawsuits when the insurance company rips me off and traffic jams and things that we face in life, right? But I want to allocate most of those stress resources to the thing that's going to give me the best return on investment. So where does the other stuff fall in? Like uh, being a devoted cold plunge enthusiast for many years and a devoted enthusiast to fasting for many years. Uh, how about sauna? How about uh, all these other ways that we can create um, hormetic stressors as they're known? Uh, but if you put them all together and stack them up on one side of the scale, we want to make sure that the scales of justice are balanced where we have rest, recovery, restoration. So with my cold plunge practice specifically, 
what I've done is I've toned down my incredibly intense devotion and uh, the need to go every single day and see how adapted I can get to go from three minutes to four minutes to five minutes to six minutes at 38 degree Fahrenheit was my my top performance when I'm trying to show off and put a put a video up on social media or something. So now I enjoy the practice uh, in a more casual manner for a much shorter duration. Uh, I, I oftentimes just put my legs in after workouts and not my whole body. So I deliberately don't do a therapeutic cold exposure session like I would do independently from workout because I already stress myself at the running track. So I'm just toning down this um, this concept of throwing in as many hormetic stressors as you can because uh, what doesn't kill you make you stronger. Uh, Jay Feldman has two great articles on his website about hormesis. You can easily search for those or if you want to put them in the links. And he says, wait, uh, we also have to remember that, quote, the effects of stress are cumulative. So one cold plunge, hey, spike in norepinephrine and dopamine, sustained lasting for an hour at 200 to 300% baseline. So you feel alert, energized, fantastic, anti-inflammatory, immune boosting, all these benefits. But let's talk in um, 27 years after I've done 4,893 cold plunges. <laughs> Is this stuff going to wear out the poor old man that keeps doing it? That's arguably what we're looking at here. Same with fasting, where um, you know people are touting the one meal a day strategy because they've cleaned up their gut health, they've lost weight. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. But let's talk to all the OMOD people after 20 freaking years of only eating one meal a day mm -hmm. and see how you're doing with your protein requirements, whether you're catabolizing lean muscle tissue from the hours of 8 a.m. until 3 p.m. when you stuff your face with whatever meal that is. Okay, so you've changed your mind on you know these hormetic stressors that are stacked upon each other that could cause too much stress because they all go into the same stress bucket, whether it's cold plunging or you know someone cuts you off when you're driving <laughs> and or your you know your your work or whatever's happening that's stressing you out. So, right, I think this is something to pay attention to. It's something that I'm been more vigilant about is because I do have a cold plunge that's about. 50 yards behind me, whatever, 40, 30 yards behind me that I could use all the time. It's interesting. I had a buddy who, who got the same cold plunge that I got and he's like way into it. And he sends me a text about like how many times and this and that, and he's going in it like every day. And I just said to him, I said, you know, I would just, you know, keep an eye on that, not overdo it. It is a stressor. Um, I think he was going like six days a week. Like for me, I typically it's it's more of like a feeling. I, I I don't go in the cold plunge on a res, on a day of resistance training, mm -hmm. because there there has been some studies showing that you know when you do resistance training, you're causing this inflammatory response in the body, and so if you're going to go into a cold plunge after you do a lift, you're sort of refuting what just happened, or you're 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 not allowing yourself to sort of um, recover and rebuild. Um, because then you're going into this anti-inflammatory state when you're in the cold plunge, if that makes sense for people. So I actually do my cold plunging on my, my off days. If I'm going to do them, you could do them. If you go for a run, I'm just talking about for resistance training, you don't really want it to, to do a lift and then go into a plunge. Um, so anyways, that's how I sort of look at them. And, and like you said, it's just something you want to sort of, you know, I'm sure there's individuals who can handle more stress than others. Right. Mm -hmm. But like. If if you don't, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, so you've changed your mind on that, which is 
Well, it's just um, if you're not doing much and you're a commuter and you're sitting in front of a screen for eight hours a day, man, I would say throw all that stuff on, you know, like I'm, I'm hanging out with my buddies at the beach and um, I'm like, come on, let's go do a Let's go do an ocean plunge. Oh, no, it's too cold right now. You've been sitting on your ass all day in, in a working envi- sure. office environment. Let's get the body some action, man. So whatever it takes, and that's hot sauna, cold plunge. These things are super health boosting, especially the sauna research where they have an increase in life expectancy. So we can't wither from lack of uh, stimulus to the organism, but I'm uh, advocating that your best return on investment is going to be from actual exercise and movement. And um, then you can you know, sprinkle in these other things to be as badass as possible for sure. Yeah, I mean, I just did a micro podcast on infrared saunas. <laughs> and um, the one thing I thought that was really interesting about it is it creates, it's it's this passive cardio activity, okay, that the sauna session stimulates this circulation similar to exercise, giving you like another tool, right, for yourself to use as almost, you know, like a way of exercising but without the physical demands of it, tech, typically. Right. <laughs> so it's it's not, literally a cardiovascular yeah. workout. Right. And not to say that you, that should be your only thing, but you know, let's just say you're injured or you've had a long week, you weren't able to work out, but you know, you do, you go for a couple saunas sessions. Well, you know, it's, it's sort of a way to mimic exercising without the physical demands. So pretty cool. I was yeah. reading a bit about that. Um, Okay, let's do one more and then we'll we'll call it a day. What's is there one more thing you wanted to touch on that you've changed your mind on over the years? Yeah, I mean, I've spent my most of my uh life as a endurance athlete, um not in recent years, but you know, for decades, um the start of my day was to take my dog out for a, a 30 or 40 or 20 minute steady state uh low intensity cardiovascular run. Okay. And now I realize that there's really no justification for doing that. The fitness benefits are minimal in comparison to um, the, you know, the, the big picture, the big ticket items like resistance training and um, explosive sprinting and any type of explosive exercise. These are the things that are going to get you the most return for your longevity and overall health and vitality and come with less risk than steady state cardio, which has tremendous risk factors when you overdo it. And the problem with this uh, widespread obsession with zone two is that it's mostly zone 2.5 or 2.7. And people are thinking that they're doing zone two comfortably paced, fat burning emphasis, and they're not. They're going too hard because of uh, lack of knowledge, lack of awareness, um, poor calculations, got the wrong information. But your fat max heart rate or your zone two limit is extremely comfortable. It's so comfortable and so non-strenuous that it doesn't really feel like a workout. And so when I go into a busy gym and look at the people on the stair machines and the uh, 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 the ellipticals and the treadmills with their red face and their panting, um, they're way beyond what is an appropriate aerobic training stimulation. And they're into what Mark Sisson has called chronic cardio, 
where they're producing too many stress hormones in a chronic manner, and they're going to suffer from breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury. And the running population of serious runners, the stats are so disturbing that we really need to wake up and have a widespread commitment to slowing down to get the proper workout stimulation. So emphasizing true zone one and zone two cardio, which means you're living an active energetic life. If you want to do it with minimal risk, you walk because walking is a uh, low impact. It doesn't have all those uh, problems with, um, you know, going out for steady state cardio running and getting injured and getting sick and getting tired and burnt out. And also with the most prominent goal of the fitness population being to reduce excess body fat, walking is going to help you drop excess body fat more than steady state running at a higher pace. Because what happens when you push the body up into those slightly elevated glucose burning zones is you increase your appetite. And it might happen 12 hours later where you're hitting the pint of Ben and Jerry's because you ran six in the morning with your friend at the park and your friend's faster than you. And this has been a pattern that's been going on for the entire duration of the running boom, six decades. And people are still um, widely struggling with excess body fat, despite a sincere commitment to putting in a lot of miles every week running. And if they just slowed down and sprinkled in um, the, the proper biggest payoff workouts, which are resistance training, where you're putting the muscles under load and explosive all-out sprinting. It doesn't have to be high impact. It could be on the stationary bike. It could be on the Versa climber. It could be on kettlebell swings for 10 seconds on and uh, one or two minutes off. That's the stuff that will keep you active, energetic, and muscular and keeping the body fat off rather than the jogging or the um, using the cardio machines at slightly to significantly elevated heart rates. Okay. So your point is if you, if you have 20, 30 minutes, instead of doing some type of steady state cardio, you're best off doing some type of resistance training. Uh, well, if you're, if you're I mean, be you're better off doing all of it, right? So if well, you have, if you have, uh, you know, we want to hit that cardio objective in life because we don't move enough now, but the, the best way to do it is walk the dog for seven minutes in the morning, walk the dog for seven minutes in the evening. Once a week on the weekend, if you want to go for a run in the park or go for a hike, that's great. And then we also have those minimum, you know, minimum necessary dose of strength training where you got to put your muscles under resistance load a couple times a week, or you're going to get old and, and hunched over and frail and you're going to fall. So it's yeah. it's really simple. It's not time consuming, but we have to hit the checkpoints. We can't just think that we're going to, run 40 miles a week to um to longevity when when the truth is you're going to run to an early grave in many ways and i'll just add one more thing on that i always if would you rather i mean not that it's always a vanity thing but would you rather look like a sprinter or, <laughs> or the the guys that are running these you know marathons or ultra marathons that look like like if a big gust of wind comes um they're done you yeah. know, so I mean, there, there are the no, uh, are unbelievable. Yeah. there are no fat sprinters. There, there are none. Right. Um, now, if you look at the marathon population, there was a study at the Cape Town Marathon, South Africa, 30% of the entrants had a BMI body composition um, outside the healthy range. So 30% of the runners were fat. And for the, the World for Health the, Organization for the marathon runners or for, for the, the marathon entrants. 30 percent 
World Health Organization statistics says um, 30% of uh, the global population is uh, overweight or obese. And so when you can't tell the difference between a spectator and a marathon runner, we have a problem with the, the sport and the way it's approached. And I don't mean to offend anybody here because there's all kinds of things in the background. People are doing the best they can. Anyone who's out there exercising is, you know, vastly superior to someone who doesn't, you know, disregards the human body and just sits around all day. But if we just slow down, things will feel so much better. And if you slow down, you'll have energy to get into your home basement facility and pull the X3 bar a few times or get on the stationary bike. I have one of those Carol bikes where it has an eight minute workout involving uh, a couple sprints or more than that, but you sprint all out and you get a tremendous uh, fitness response in the muscles and the cardiovascular system in a fraction of the time that jogging an hour or climbing the stairs for an hour in the gym uh, turns you into. Yeah. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, doing something is better than nothing. I mean, yes, you can overdo any of these and, but like, yes, I mean, I rather look like a sprinter than a marathon runner. Um, and you can still do some, some type of cardiovascular, uh, I don't know for me, like I use a rogue echo bike. I'm I could be on and off that thing in like five to eight minutes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And be done and and, and tax myself. But you know, you want to obviously use that, um, sparingly i don't do it like every a day or every other day you know maybe maybe once or twice a week of doing something like that because that bike is you know the real yeah, deal but you know any person in an office environment can push that chair back and do a set of 20 deep squats right now sure, to right. break up the stillness and the uh the change in um hormonal and metabolic function that happens when you're still even for short periods of time and these can when you sprinkle them in i call them micro workouts you know over the course of a year if you hit that pull-up bar that's uh, under the doorway a couple few times a week for five reps um you know we're yeah, talking about point. we're yeah. talking about 750 pull-ups over the course of the year just because you walked through the doorway and you said okay i'll, I'll take 12 seconds of my busy day or 30 seconds and so that's the part where we need to change the mentality from struggle, suffer for an hour long cardio session, go home, have Ben and Jerry's 12 hours later to a fitness oriented lifestyle where we can sprinkle in these short bursts of uh, explosive effort. You can pull the stretch cords. You can, you can do one set of X3 bar that takes 30 seconds and then go about your busy day. Yeah. Micro workouts, sprinkle them in um, consistency over perfection. All right, Brad. Well, this was great. We could probably go for a long time, but I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, the B- Check out Brad. He's got the B-Rad podcast, which I love. I listen to your podcast all the time. And I know you have... Uh, tell, tell us a little... You got, uh, you got a, a whey protein, right? Which I love. Has creatine in it. And I've had it and it tastes great. Um, what else? Anything else? Oh my goodness. If you visit bradkearns.com, you can see these uh, nutrition products that I, I have going. I'm, I'm trying to make the very best, highest quality protein out there. And we're, we're coming up with some new products shortly. Um, the podcast is a great way to connect. Send me an email. We love to answer and connect with everybody. And we're all, we're all in this together. And the more awareness we can get and, uh, you know, uh, take these, take these small baby steps every day. They, they really add up over time. Yeah. So Check check them out. I'll put a link in the show notes, bradkearns.com. You can find everything you need. So thanks, Brad, for coming on. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.